This is Theology Gaming Monologues, and this is the Wonderful 101. Team, unite up! Game journalists. They have no idea how to play some video games. This is one of them. The Wonderful 101 takes your jaded cynicism, knocks it out with sleeping pills, wraps it in a straitjacket, then flings you off a 20-story building before you land on a giant pile of proximity mines. The Wonderful 101 takes your nostalgia on a wild rollercoaster ride of craziness, with loops and gut-wrenching drops galore, only to stop after 10 or 12 hours. You'll scream bloody murder to go on again, I assure you. These insufficient metaphors cannot begin to describe the fun I've had playing and replaying Hideki Kamiya's latest grand opus. I'm not sure what his games do to me, but they go above and beyond the Call of Duty, no pun intended, in being just a pure bundle of entertainment. Most of all, they engage through their systems and complexities, stuffed to the gills with nuances that only one can only learn through constant practice and effort. The rewards seem intangible, but the insurmountable situations and challenges Kamiya's experiences present in the post-game show a depth and mastery that come from years of experience or natural talent from this director. What else can I say? I truly enjoy his creativity and his ability to make me smile, repeatedly. The Wonderful 101 is a video game of unparalleled joy and fun centered on the experience of, at least from an American perspective, the Saturday morning cartoon kids block, now sadly defunct. From animated shows to Power Rangers, I specifically woke up each morning just to watch certain shows. Who could miss the Money Morphin Power Rangers every week as they fought aliens from space doing battle against the enemies of Earth and righting the wrongs of the universe? Yes, these shows painted morality in broad black-and-white brushstrokes, but they contained such an innocence about them. Right and wrong were clear. Honor and goodness always triumphed. Characters would face their own demons, sure, but they would emerge through the clouds of doubt with the help of their friends and mentors. Everything resolved itself in the end, as our heroes triumphed over enormously stacked odds through the power of friendship and dedication to a cause greater than themselves. If we want to become more specific... Hideki Kamiya probably imagined the Wonderful 101 as a video game analog to the Super Sentai series. Clearly, this game wasn't made for children. Some jokes go a little too far for that crowd, but the adults who remember such shows should look upon the game with fondness. The same stereotypes and archetypes emerge. The valiant hero, the rebellious, friendly rival, the ditzy girl, people with foreign accents who speak awkwardly and spell catchphrases a whole lot, but all of it comes as though a total love affair to nostalgia is happening here. It recreates that sense of time and place, without succumbing to its lesser qualities. In a phrase, it's camp that knows it's camp. And that's a wonderful, har-har, thing. I cannot possibly hate on a video game with such a self-aware and good-natured theme song, right? I can't tell you how stupidly giddy all of this made me throughout. The only game that in recent memory made me crack a goofy smile and a hearty laugh more often was The Legend of Zelda The Wind Waker. Just by playing the game, I sensed the designers and the creators alike displayed a heartfelt love for their childhood that just burst through every crack and pore of the presentation. Bright colors flash throughout, and the designs all subtly evoke a future world that could only exist in video games. And man, that soundtrack really pumps you up. From what I can tell, the entire 5-plus disc soundtrack was crafted meticulously using a full orchestra, highlighting every action sequence in the game with verve and dynamism. Themes recur over and over again, continually ratcheting the tension higher and higher. 
the fights with Prince Vorkin, your quote-unquote rival, highlights this the most, as each battle with his team of Gyzox space pirates, how dumb a name, increases the difficulty and the musical volume, eventually adding a full choir. The sense of progression boulders into huge momentum for the game. I mean, if any kid gets the opportunity to make his own thing, doesn't he just love upping the stakes and pushing the boundaries further in his limitless imagination? Platinum Games does just this here. You thought Bayonetta's conclusion, literally hurling a god into the sun, felt epic? That's nothing compared to the absolute insanity at the end of the Wonderful 101, which takes the idea of giant space robot combat to an entirely new level. Think Megazord times a thousand. A team of 100 plus superheroes create a massive scale for most any boss, and the pacing on the Wonderful 101's long operations mean they can slowly ramp up the stakes in both spectacular action set pieces and game mechanics. Honestly, I'm hesitant to spoil it for anyone who hasn't played it yet, especially since at the time of this writing, the game is a little more than a year old, but suffice to say that the last operation blows your every expectation of Platinum Games over-the-top nature completely out of the water. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. It's incredibly high, and I wished everyone could experience it. At the same time, such shows about superheroes and super kids spend a great deal of time explaining bizarro pseudoscience to impressionable young minds. Do they need to explain all that stuff? Not at all, but they do. How do those suits work anyway? Why does pressing a button suddenly turn a teenage kid into a crazy ninja in a bright spandex suit that, with the help of his friends, can summon a giant robot to fight bigger giant aliens? Honestly, they don't need to explain it. And yet those kind of explanations that refuse to talk down to children give them a sense of curiosity about the world. How do things work? Why? Fake universes give children the sense that they're experts on something even adults couldn't understand, or, more accurately, <laughs> couldn't care less about. And that sort of empowerment gives them an entry point into the universe at large. I know it was true for me, at least. The Wonderful 101 continues in that long tradition, explaining so many things, and yet making it all up. Truly, that's just a nostalgic pleasure for me. And yet, that same strange love of making stuff up also translate directly into the inaccessible nature of the Wonderful 101's game rules and systems. Frankly put, this game isn't for everyone, even if I wish it were so. The Wonderful 101 plays like a combination of Hideki Kamiya's previous works, and as a culmination, it naturally layers tons of nuanced complexities to the proceedings. At the same time, it refuses to explain any of this in much detail, leaving the player to learn through doing the very embodiment of experiential learning. Unfortunately, I cannot imagine many players struggling through the various systems at play, given the near-vertical difficulty curve. Although the manuals included on the disc, paper manuals seem to be fading out, it's difficult to find and not intuitive at all. I had to go like to the Nintendo of Europe website to find it. Who the heck is going to put a disc in and try to find a PDF manual for this thing? Anyway, all that said, the tutorial's pretty awful. Even for a stylish character action veteran like myself, the adjustment period to a completely brand new system in presentation takes time, especially with controlling a hundred heroes at once. Unlike other such games, you need to manage a group of superheroes in addition to yourself, though you can only take damage by letting your main character take a hit. Losing your other heroes, who can't die, to enemy fire limits your options substantially due to the exquisite Wonderliner system. 
taking advantage of the Wii U's gamepad and copying more than a little from Okami, but you can plagiarize yourself, Kamiya. The Wonderliner allows you to literally draw weapons into existence with your stock of heroes, called Unite Morphs, and these remain the basic tools of offense. Draw a circle and you'll form Unite Hand, a heavy damage close range attacking morph. For a little extra range, draw a straight line to create Unite Sword. Draw them with more heroes and you obtain a huge increase into attack power for a short time. The game keeps adding new morphs to your arsenal and also introduces non-combat uses for nearly all of them, and those then turn into combat mechanics. Use them too much though, and you'll drain the Unite meter they draw upon, so you need to manage your use of Unite morphs throughout. This seemingly convoluted system solves one of the primary problems with character action games, the inability to choose any weapon at any time. Even Bayonetta, though its roster of weapons numbered in the double digits, forced you to swap between two weapon sets that requires a menu screen to shift around. Ninja Theory's DMC attempted the same thing, though with mixed results. This isn't so in the wonderful 101. If you want to use something, draw it quickly and use it. At the same time, drawing Wonderliner shapes quickly will test your skills and patience at first. Not only can you draw in any direction, but drawing a shape quickly in those directions will demand your concentration, especially in the heat of battle. Small combat spaces force you to learn how to draw well in any situation, as you just can't Wonderliner into an enemy, especially most shielded enemies, because they'll knock you out of the Wonderliner. Eventually, though, shifting between weapons and finding optimal ways to draw them fast becomes second nature. The nuances present a system that turns weapon switching into a game of spatial awareness and speed. Quite an improvement, and bizarrely nuanced. That works for combos, too, and you can rapidly switch between morphs in combo sequences just via drawing. I think someone calls it Unite Mixing. And it's really hard to do, but once you learn how to do it, it's super satisfying. As the game increases in difficulty, both in progression and in speed, you'll want to draw as fast as possible. The system on hard and below slows the entire game down, much like Bayonetta's Witch Time, so that you can see what shape you're drawing. But the 101% hard mode, and the multiplayer for obvious reasons, does not contain this feature. This means if you want to do well, you need to draw accurately and fast. No easy feat. I often confuse Unite Hammer, which is a straight line in a circle, the whip, any line with a slight bend in it. I know that sounds strange, but it you'll get used to it when you actually do draw it. And the claw, which is basically draw the Zoro shape at first, but over time you'll understand the game's recognition features and how it reads each drawing. Explaining this in text makes little sense, but suffice to say a, tactical, a tactile approach works best. In other words, please buy the game and figure it out. At the same time, I don't really recommend using the gamepad at all for drawing. It does not provide the same nuances as a traditional control scheme. As a proper and excellent alternative, using the right analog stick actually works in the exact same manner, except you can draw much faster this way than with the gamepad. I found taking my right hand off the buttons to become a chore after a while, and I simply learned how to rotate the analog sticks to perform the same functions. Furthermore, the ridges on the Wii Classic controller produce a nice clicking sound and the tactile feedback necessary to draw the shapes accurately. I imagine the Wii U Pro Controller performs nearly the same function. It's a little unfortunate that the Wii U's feature doesn't work all that well for me in particular, but your results may vary. 
Several players on YouTube use the touchpad almost exclusively and perform much better than I. From what I could tell, the skill ceiling is much higher on the touchpad and the speed requirement much easier to hit. Additionally, you'll need that speed to deal with many of the game's tougher foes. Harkening back to Beautiful Joe, wailing on most small foes takes zero effort, but each larger enemy requires a specific strategy to overcome. Most of them involve detecting their pattern, finding the proper counters, and implementing them with the right timing. Most enemies require Unite Guts, basically a giant parry, followed by the weapon of your choice, but the timing for all of these strategies takes some doing. And even a parry won't expose their weak point necessarily. You'll also need to use the team attack, a seemingly useless attack button that functions as a dual stun lock and lock-on function at the same time. The team attack lets members of your units latch themselves onto an enemy and attack them. If enough of them end up on an enemy, it will suddenly become stunned, indicated by a loud distinctive sound and visual effects. At this point, you need to go all out with your attacks, as most enemies only remain vulnerable for a short time. The importance of juggling with Unite Morphs becomes incredibly important, as you can kill enemies in one stun if you're proficient in paying attention to other dangers. The team attack's lock-on function also lets you dash to any locked-on foe simply by pressing the attack button, a necessary feature for both speed and juggles. You don't want to linger around in this game. Multitasking turns into a necessity, and the wonderful 101 gives you the tools to fight multiple enemies at once. Drawing Unite Morphs with the X button instead of A will allow other characters in a group to the attack independently of you for 3 seconds. You can draw up to 4 of these attacks at once in addition to attacking by yourself, meaning you can pile on the damage and combo potential of your primary target or keep another one busy. Those kind of split second decisions make every combat situation exciting. Each enemy only opens up their guard for a few seconds after stun and you need to take advantage of those moments while making sure you don't die in the process to other enemies or random projectiles. Given the number of weapons at your disposal, you'll need to experiment with the most efficient means by which to kill your foes, and that process provides hours of enjoyable guesswork and guide efficiency. The scoring system plays perfectly into this model, encouraging the player to enlarge their combos, work fast, and take as little damage as possible. Sometimes you just need to run around until you find an opening, so take advantage of your run speed. In sum, it plays like a Hideki Kamiya game, one that obviously takes a lot of risks that pay off wholly and utterly. It helps that the levels space out these combat sequences into long, segmented experiences of exploration, puzzles, and random references to other video games that Hideki Kamiya loves. Honestly, the levels go on forever, in a good way. They allow the designers to think about how they want to pace the various combat segments, and also want them to add some variety to keep the player from boredom. Absence makes the heart grow fonder, as they say, and those quiet periods between combat segments add to their enjoyment. The Wonderful 101 experiments a little bit with gamepad-specific segments, mostly requiring you to use the second screen to control your characters in a tight room for the purpose of puzzles. None of these particularly amazed me. Even the shooting sequence one just seems to be going through the motions. But they add unique elements in unexpected stuff to the pacing of the long single-player levels. The puzzles separate from gimmicky use also implement the Unite Morphs in non-combat ways, allowing for new approaches to combat and Unite build that would otherwise make for constant fighting without respite. As well, you'll want to explore levels for collectibles that range from batteries, to increase your Unite gauge, important, to other wonderful ones, most of which exist for the purpose of unlocking. 
The boss battles, on the other hand, range the gamut from taking advantage of the wonderful 101's unique combat systems to random implementation of different game style that ignore the wonderful 101's carefully crafted combat. I love tributes to Space Harrier, Star Fox, The Legend of Zelda, Punch-Out, and many other Nintendo properties, not including Space Harrier. Apparently, the wonderful 101 started as a Nintendo tribute game, and remnants of that design remain. They certainly play against expectations, but being ranked for them seems a little problematic. Yeah, you could succeed with practice, but they become annoyances when playing for score, as did the Afterburner tribute in Bayonetta. I hate Chapter 14. Minor mistakes snowball into bigger ones, and constant restarting does not make these experiences fun as ranked experiences. They still delight and amuse in the grand scheme of the game's story and atmosphere, but they just don't mesh well with the scoring system. They enhance the scale, if not the mechanics. Probably the bigger issue lies with the shooter segments, as in uh, shmups, as in cave shooters, you know, Gradius, R-type sort of things. In The Wonderful 101, they're from an isometric perspective. Frankly, these segments don't work well at all, as the spatial perception required to accurately dodge or absorb bullets is almost impossible to divine, and I have played for like 30 plus hours, so I should at least know that much. Getting crushed by objects due to auto-scrolling happens more than a few times, and that's a perfectly good way to piss off players looking for high ranks. Those continues count against you. Furthermore, hard mode turns these sequences into bullet hell shooters while your ship hitbox remains incredibly big. You could die in a matter of seconds if you're not paying attention. I hated this at first, but the realized this demand for perfection forces creative use of Unite Morse in an unorthodox setting. Unite Guts and all the other stuff still works. How you feel about this amounts to expectations, and this variety will either endear itself to you or make you wish it would die in a fire. Given the long list of complex ideas above, you would not think wrongly in assuming the game doesn't present you with something immediately accessible. The multiple difficulty levels only seek to emphasize this as they change up enemy and boss patterns, requiring new approaches to old content. You'll also take reams of damage which will detrimentally impact your score, forcing you to play well and without mistake. Of course, the wonderful 101 does allow for a natural difficulty curve, but it demands that you learn and retain more than 10 different shapes of various uses in the heat of battle. Not exactly easy stuff. And I will say myself that I did not get very good rankings at all my first playthrough, so your mileage will vary. Of course, there's a few issues that crop up due to the scale of the game. The camera. Yes, the camera's not that great, although I hesitate to call it any worse than Metal Gear Rising Revengeance. At least it isn't actively hampering your experience most of the time. The 100 plus characters on screen demand a new perspective, and in place of a traditional third person viewpoint, Platinum Games provides a strange isometric view. As a compromise, it allows them to retain the scale they desire. At the same time, the light platforming involved in some stages never quite feels right. Death isn't an issue, as only combat deaths count as kind of score, but losing a little help due to a bad camera made me question why they bothered in the first place. It's also true that the camera does zoom in for dramatic effect on some sequences, but you can zoom out at most anytime. Simple taps of the L and R button usually alleviate your problem sometimes. <laughs> the, the rule is a little bit inconsistent. The camera will at points zoom in and out for no reason, and I don't know what causes it. I never found that the camera blindsided me with enemy attacks or deep damage. Enemies never appear without their presence made known via cutscene, sound, or otherwise. 
So in that sense, the camera isn't an issue if you analyze threats and prioritize accordingly. As well, gamepad segments turn buggy depending on the angle you hold the controller when entering them, since the angle detection always feels a little bit off, although L and R will adjust the camera even here. Just don't pause. I found that pausing in all kinds of sequences where the camera shifts will cause the GameCAD camera to just stop functioning. I imagine that's a one-off glitch, but I want to point that out at least. None of these problems really break the game, though. Think of them as relatively minor annoyances on the way to pure gaming pleasure. If there's one problem with the combat, I could say that Unite Bomb fixes many, way too many problems in the game that you'll have. Unite Bomb's the last standard weapon you get, and by then its usefulness become apparent. Anything touched by its blast radius slows down as if in a time warp, meaning that combo opportunities lengthen and you can really pile on the damage even on foes with a standard weakness. I found myself relying on it far too often for the later enemy types, turning many encounters into Unite Bomb spam. Thankfully, the challenge increases in hard and 1% hard renders this moot, as the enemy configurations won't make Unite Bomb spam an optimal choice in nearly every situation. That's especially true of the Kakuragas, the Waterfall 101's version of Secret Missions, or Elfheims, or Muspelheims, or whatever the Devil May Cry secret missions are called, along with actual secret missions that take backtracking to fun. They require a level beyond your standard encounters, often requiring some trial and error or forethought to understand and complete, let alone metal. I should probably also mention Operation 101, the quote-unquote ladder test that presents the game's greatest challenge, but I doubt most people even get into that hour-long intense combat experience that probably highlights all the game's strengths with none of its problems. Heck, the arenas of all such missions run at a smooth 60 frames per second. Contrast this to the slight slowdown to motion missions and you'll see the difference, without clutter. So it all comes down to how you understand a game's systems. Is that ever exciting? So after all of this, you must expect that I enjoyed the game straight from the beginning, enjoyed myself, and loved it at first glance. No. The first five hours or so represented the greatest struggle I've had with a video game in a long time. The first stage eases you into the game, but even then it doesn't make sense from a first glance. The visuals will ultimately make you assume that you're playing a Pikmin-esque game, and I imagine that was problematic from a marketing standpoint, and that's not the case at all. The tutorials, which try to teach you by popping up messages on the left-hand side of the screen, give zero context as to what new ability X actually does. The objectives pre presently vary from cryptic to completely uninformative, with such helpful tips as defeat all enemies plastered on screen while I wander around the stage. Not exactly fun times. My frustration with the game was readily apparent to any and all watching me play the game, as I yelled at the game for being so weird and strange. I just didn't get it. Operation 3 in particular threw me for a loop, with its absolutely boneheaded decision to place a rotating cylinder plus a platforming section within an isometric camera system. Drawing the Wonderliner in that environment is simply a mess, and then figuring out how to put out fires also made no sense until I tried random stuff. This did not make me feel good at all. They made me feel like I was along for the ride. I honestly could not understand why the game played the way it did, why it kept dying, and why it felt so difficult and completely lacking intuitive design. I bought the dodge and parry moves right from the onset, of course, but the timing for both seemed slightly off. I kept playing the wonderful 101 as if I were playing Bayonetta, and that did not work at all. Bayonetta operates on a premise of complete combat freedom. 
You hold the weapons, and you determine how to use their vast array of moves to fulfill the time and combo requirements for high rank, abusing which time, or just dodging well, as in non-stop infinite climax mode, buttresses the rest. The wonderful 101, instead, constrains you into particular molds of play. You literally earn your right to mess around with combos only after you stun enemies or find their weaknesses. And even then, other foes will knock you out of aerial combos. You need to time parries and dodges correctly, making sure to adjust to the seemingly slow pace of the combat. I often anticipated attacks far before they would come and end up punished as a result. If you pay attention and attack accordingly, you'll win. Otherwise, every engagement will appear an exercise in attrition and frustration. I suppose a lot of my problems came down to expectations and what I wanted out of the game, rather than what the game presented to me. I wanted to play it like every other game in the genre, and it simply didn't allow for it. Once I finally surrendered to its unique brand of quick thinking and strategizing, everything finally fell into place. The impositions and assumptions I placed in the game made it more difficult, when I simply let go of my own plans and ideas, letting the game be as it was, I found it infinitely more enjoyment than fun than I would otherwise. Once I submitted to its whims and intricacies, everything fell into place, and had more fun with the wonderful 101 than I've had with any game in recent memory. That's the primary component, submission. Try to wrestle control from the game, and you'll just end up dead again and again. In Christianity, the same proves true. Resist God's will and discipline, and things will just not go well for you. I have found over time that the best way to live life is to accept things as they are and to take things as they come. As they say, the best way to make God laugh is to tell him your plans, and that's been true enough of me. Whenever I tell him what I'll do for him, he ends up telling me something completely different whether by circumstance or otherwise. The proud are humbled and the weak are made strong. When I think I know it all, I simply don't. When I am not content with my position and stake in life, I do not draw nearer to God. When I accept what God lies before me, regardless of what it is, everything progresses exactly as He wills. That's my lot and portion. What else can I say to the Creator than that? God does it for my good, and so I accept it as good. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children, for what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we all have had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of Spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Hebrews 12 I tend to think of video games in that same way precisely because it rings so true in my life. Those games which constrain, which bear down on you and force you to excel in a focused, complex way represents that walk better than any media I've experienced. When I finally get a handle on a challenging game, there's few better feelings in the world than knowing you finally understand something the designers obviously wanted you to know. All it takes, really, is a submission to the unique qualities of any particular game to reach that mountain peak, butting heads against its quirks and refusing to learn them will end up in repeated failure after failure. The rewards on the other side, however, will always win the day. 
instead of saying, this is too childlike for me, or this is too difficult, or games need to mean more. I simply let the games teach me, rather than trying to tell it what it should or should not be. And that's exactly why I like the Wonderful 101. It forces me to accept it, and in the process, love it. This has been Theology Gaming Monologues. I hope you enjoyed this long rant about the Wonderful 101. And maybe you have a little better perspective on how to play it, although I doubt listening to this alone will have you understand how the game plays. In fact, a better recommendation on my part would be go buy a Wii U and go buy the Wonderful 101 and experience it for yourself. I think it's a system seller, but, you know, that's just me. If you like what you heard and you want to hear more, go to TheologyGaming.com, where we have tons of articles and other stuff and more podcasts in iTunes and go give us a five-star rating and all the usual things. We also have a Facebook group called Theology Gaming University, where you may talk to me and all the rest of the contributors and writers and just random passerbys who also like to talk about theology, God, and video games. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this incredibly exhaustive document of my obsession with the Wonderful 101. Thank you, and see you guys later.